Myro, well, Vincent asked us to come today. He wanted something a bit different, and we may provide that. Uh, he wanted to do a bit of an update on really the big talking points of the conference. And so basically to interview Stephen Ash. Exactly. We um, we were gonna. We normally we do a bit of a warm up though at the start. We the normal what we do on the Ag Watchers though is a bit uh, takes a bit of time, and it's you know we've got to get the mental assessment done. So we might do an easier warm up to start off with these two guys. We're just going to ask you two questions each, I think. So I think I might fire off to you first, Steve. What uh, what keeps you up at night, Steve, in the Ag space? Uh, in the Ag space, um, pretty easy for me. Um, exotic diseases, FMD. Um, as mentioned, it's going to affect um, our livelihoods going forward. Uh, like most of us, we've all got a bit of a debt, um, some bigger than others, and um, yeah, that's what keeps me awake. And uh, so then what would get you up in the morning then, get you rearing and going? Debt. Um, <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Simple as that. Ash, same to you. What keeps you up at night? Um, I think trying to trying to come up with ways to get government to give us what we want. That's what gets you up at night. I was going to say. I thought, the, I thought the first answer would be just get to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> As we get on in age, it, you know, it's a regular occurrence. I was saying, I was saying to yeah. Ash last night that he reminded me of a, of a landlord from London in the East End or something. I was expecting you to come out with some East End accent and offer me a pint of Guinness or something. <laughs> you got that look about you. What about what gets you up in the mornings? Oh, I'd be like Steve if you've got a few million reasons to get out of bed in the morning. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I guess what gets me up in the morning is... Um, yeah, from a VFF perspective, it's just trying to make a difference. Very good, very good. Um, we've spoken at, at, the, at the session today, farm labour was one of the things that came up and I was chatting to Steve last night at the, the event at Arnie Jack's, which was fabulous. Um, and you were telling me, Steve, that uh, you do your own crutching. I'm talking about the sheep, of course, not yourself. Right? Um, and I was just wondering, is that something you just do for the sheer enjoyment or is it actually because it's the issue with labour that's kind of making you make those decisions and do your own crutching? Yeah, good question. Um, I think, yeah, as a young uh, boy growing up during the 90s, um, which wasn't that far away, I suppose, uh, yeah, we're all short of money. The wool price was um, absolutely ordinary. So to survive and um, keep going, yeah, you had to do your own work. So, um, yeah, I don't mind crutching. Um, I certainly don't do the big crutch like um, the professionals do, but obviously um, I do it when I need to, and um, a lot of the shearers at the moment um, are too busy shearing. They won't crutch or shear rams, so that's a bit of an issue. Yeah, that's that, that's been a, a huge uh, kind of issue with regards to getting access to shearers. Have you found it has been kind of getting worse and worse season in, season out? Like, how are you going with your shearing teams? Yeah, look, I tried to breed um, three shearers, but I ended up with three rouseabouts, but um, that's one, um, well, one can shear. Um, but look, it's, yeah, the money is good. There's no doubt about it. Um, a 50-year-old shearer shearing um, 150-odd sheep a day, not me, but, you know, it's over $600 a, a day, and he can't believe it. He was there, you know, when the um, shearing rate was 80 cents. Um, so, for a rouseabout, they don't work as hard as they used to, make no mistake. I mean, um, if you can get a rouseabout, well, they can only handle two shearers, and that's a good one. I mean, again, back in the day, I'm sure, you know, we all had to go at three or four shearers and did it, because we had to. Um, so, I don't know if the respect's not there for actual work, 
or if it's too easy to get welfare. Um, but geez, there's good money, yeah, for any for anybody to work hard, um, buy a car as quick as you can. Um, it's a great industry industry to be involved with. Get you around the country as well for those young people that want to uh, kind of explore a bit and get a bit of skills. And, and they, like you're saying, you're earning good money out there, but it's just not attracting. Um, those kind of people, though, and, and, and with COVID as well and not having the Kiwis coming across, of course. Do you think um, do you think it is that's part of the, the pressure on this move towards the shedding types as well, that people are really considering getting out of that, that kind of game where you need to be searching for a shearing team? Yeah, certainly, and, you know, facilities have a role to play there. Um, you know, a lot of sheds haven't got running water or a flushing toilet, and... Um, to try and um, get shearers out to some of these um, remote places. Um, you know, the farmers have just put up their hands and said, well, look, we'll do without the shearers and go to those shedding breeds and goats. Um, certainly fit that um, place as well. But it's not money anymore, is it, though? Like, you can offer as much money as you want, but you, there's no access to staff. Like, in the past, like, how many backpackers would you use? Uh, not me personally, but yeah, backpackers certainly play, played a major role um, in all shearing teams um, throughout Australia. Um, you know, they potentially have to start off in outback Queensland and away they go. And um, yeah, obviously some can do it and some can't, but they just kept on bringing in backpackers. So it was probably, um, unfortunately, to the detriment of our industry that, um, no offence to backpackers, but... Um, we missed, again, a whole generation of uh, potential workers in our industry, but I'm sure it's the same with all industries. But it's going to be a challenge ongoing because 3.9% unemployment at the moment, how do you get somebody, like Matt and I have got a pig farm, how do we get somebody to work in a pig farm when they can go to work anywhere for probably more money? And it's a difficult one. It is difficult, and as um, the man from Graincorp said, you know, they're starting to recruit now. Um, my eyes here in a non-traditional busy time of the year um, and it's difficult for me uh, so there's always offers of big money uh, but there's it's still difficulty so to answer your question I don't know it's we've looked at chemical shearing bioclip was great uh, there's a new chemical shearing system about to be launched um, in the near future give them a drench um, and but yeah th again that's going to take time so during this vacuum, sure, there's a huge, um, huge pressure on the merino and crossbred or any shearing industry going forward. Andrew, you, um, you came across Australia as a backpacker, of course, and worked in the uh, West Australian's grainage for a while. That's a little bit of a dig at Andrew, but you didn't really, I know, but um, I was just going to... I'd love to be a backpacker. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, and it, look, they are quite common in that grain space, though, right? And particularly in WA, aren't they? Like, you can tell us oh, about your time there. Like, backpackers are everywhere. It's full of Irish people doing, working on the farms, including myself. But, but Ash, in terms of from a grains point of view, let's be honest, grains is easier. You only work for, what, two months a year? <laughs> you know, you've got seeding, harvesting. It's simply crazy. It's crazy. So it must be easier to get people in grains. No, we, 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 we have the same challenges. And... And it's, it's more complex than just dollars and cents or available people. Um, you've got, I mean, you know, if, I, if I look at our area and, and say, look at our business, you know, between our farm and, and Baker Seeds, a seed business, you know, we're employing 30-odd people. Um, it's, 
when someone moves on from a job, they don't necessarily move, um, they don't leave the job, they leave the management. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that's really key in that as an ag sector, we need to be really mindful of, of the, not only the conditions, but the, the way we treat our workers and all that sort of thing. And, and, it's, and it's the people that are probably pretty, pretty rough on their workers that are, that are really struggling the most. Um, you know, we have a bit of a saying in our family that when you, when you come to work for the family, you work for the family. <laughs> and, and, but you did, but that's, and we, that's a bit of a tongue in cheek, but we, we very much treat our staff as part of the family. Um, you know, they, get, they, get, they get treated well. Um, we've got some multinationals in our area that really govern the pay rate and the conditions and so forth. So we do, we've always had to hop pay you know, well above what is probably industry standard anyway. But we, we still find that you know, there's always someone out there that will offer more money. But you know, we've got a very stable workforce um, and, I, and I, you know, I firmly believe it's, it's you know, and, and I think if you ask any of our guys, it's, it's more about how they're treated um, as to why they stay. Backpacker-wise, um, you know, certainly those really seasonal positions um, like, like harvest receival and so forth, they're heavily reliant on that, on that transient, transient workforce. Um, it, most farm workers are probably not in that boat, apart from you know, the, the two or three casuals extra, you get extra just at harvest. Um, other than that, your, your farm workforce today is, is, is 12 months of the year, it is a permanent position, um, which then comes down to the other big issue, which is actually rural housing and regional housing. And we, you know, we find that there's not, there's not the, the, the places to rent, there's not the places to buy, um, there's no, there's no serious incentives out there for farmers to put on farm accommodation there. Um, that's that's probably is, you know, the biggest issue we've got is actually trying finding homes for those people. That's a, a fantastic point. Just thinking back to the pig farm, we had a bit of a, a short staff issue through through one of the COVID episodes and um, managed to secure a fantastic uh, you know kind of potential manager. Um, and, and came with an experienced partner as well that was also a pig farm worker, so we got two for the price of one. Um, took about three or four weeks to try and work with uh, the real estate agency, the pig farms near Bendigo, and we just could not find them accommodation. So we well, when, when, we, when we looked at a house to rent for them, yeah. and we were going to pay the rent and whatnot, it was 150 applicants for yeah. in Bendigo because everybody was moving from Melbourne to Bendigo, and the demand, it was... The house that they were going for, there was doctors and nurses and lawyers applying for this. So a couple of pig farmers, even even with a guaranteed credit. And, 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 and that problem is not exclusive to Bendigo. That is right across the state. Yeah, I would have thought somewhere like Bendigo would have been it. Actually, they, they, were, they were considering coming to move from the existing pig farm to Bendigo because it's got a bigger infrastructure and they had young kids, so they wanted to actually come to a place. And you'd think with a bigger kind of regional site, you would have more... Uh, you know, stock available in terms of uh, in terms of rental stock, and it just wasn't there. So we did lose those workers in the end uh, because we couldn't get it. But it, it made me think of that survey you ran the other the other day, the Twitter one on on the award wage and who, you know who in agriculture pays above award and 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 you know almost all of the participants were saying they haven't paid at the award for many many years, and, and you know you're not going to get. And it's not just the award; it's also the the house on farm or the or the you know access to the four wheel drive or, or other other kind of perks to the job. Um, is that your know, experience as well? Is that you've got to give all these extras to just to retain the staff or to attract people in? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you've got to. Yeah, it's it's a little an encompassing thing. I mean, right down to you know, we live we live right on, you know, near the Murray River there. 
and yeah, we built ourselves a Barbie boat, and you know, the senior the, the senior staff get access to that as well, and that's a, that's just a bit of an extra an extra thing that means you know that's that's special to them because it's not something they'd ever be able to do themselves, but it just it's just that little those little extra things that you know, it's, it's not a big deal for us, but it's it means the world to them. I'll, I'll, there's another question. I'll start with you, Steve, because I want both of your, your thoughts on this one. Uh, Andrew and I traditionally both uh, both city kids. Originally, obviously, Andrew from Scotland and town city town kids. Is that what you call them, townies? Um, but uh, so we came to ag from the from the urban setting, and it's, so that's a bit more of a rarer thing, I guess, uh, f to, to some uh, yes, for some. So, but I'm just wondering how what what do we need to do as an industry to attract more of people out that haven't been on farm or from regional? Are there things we can do to kind of you know encourage people to consider that as a career pathway? Because you know the, obviously the the pathway the, it's it's diverse. And, and you know, do we do enough? And, and also, I guess the second question that is, is do we sometimes shoot ourselves in the foot as a sector because you know, it, when we do go through a drought phase or whatever, there's always this, it's easy to talk about the bad stuff, but not about the good stuff in ag. And do, do we actually say enough uh, publicly about, about the good stuff? About four questions well, at once. I'm just giving it time to think while they, while they go through. Steve, what do I've you think? I've forgotten the first question. <laughs> uh, no, um, look, yeah, I've been guilty of, um, yeah, but, I suppose giving um, town kids the ex country experience, um, especially around landmarking time, and um, yeah, look again, you know, you pay them, look after them well. But these are kids that you know weren't real clever at school. Um, I've probably failed there. I should have went for the clever ones, um, but they get a great experience out of it. There's no doubt. And um, I've told this story last night. Um, you know, you're driving down, going through um, a gate sort of thing. The young fellow or girl jumps out. Fiddles around with the latch, opens it, drive through, closes it, and then realises that they're on the wrong side of the gate. Um, and the look on their face is just priceless. Um, but, and you know you're on a winner then. Um, so you, because you just, yeah, mention it every, every um, part of the day. Um, I suppose we are s probably targeting the wrong people. Um, no disrespect to you know the underachievers, but they are the ones that do work, um, and or not always. So I'm getting myself into a hole here, aren't I? Um, do we do enough? I think we do, but again, uh, historically the parents will say, "Don't go, don't work on the farm. You're better off, you know, working at being a gardener in the hospital or something like that." Guaranteed. Um, weekly wage, you know, close to home. So, yeah, that's that's a barrier at times. We, we, we're quick to say, well, what I was getting at probably is we're quick to say, though, it's a tough and hard life sometimes, but we don't maybe say enough as a sector about what what keeps us in it and why, why we're attracted to it. You know, all the good things in it, right? That we're, selling, that we're selling that kind of story as well. We're not doing enough of that, do you think? We're certainly not doing enough, and yeah, that's typical of the country um, suburban <laughs> divide at the moment. Um, we're all gu all guilty of it, unfortunately. You know, as much as we try and um, to get that message across, somehow we've got to do it better. And I certainly haven't got the answer for that. Ash has got it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting yeah, waiting I'll, patiently. I'll, I'm actually probably going to disagree with Steve, and and, and I'll explain fight, that. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> Um, I think we're actually really we're terrible at promoting ourselves and, do, and explaining what we do um, as a farming community. Um, and and I, I've been lucky enough to travel around the world with Nuffield, looking at at, um, at, at ag, ag businesses and farms everywhere. And 
the, you, you, know, you travel through Europe and so forth, and that many farms that have got a room set aside just to educate kids, educate city people on what they do, and they have they have groups come out weekly, and and they and they spend that and they take the time out of their day. Usually, the owner is and and take the time out of their day to, ex to spend two or three hours explaining to these city people or kids or whatever what, what they do and how they do it and why it's good. And it's, it's such a leaf that we could take out of that book. Um, it's, we, we, we just don't do enough of it. I think there was, I heard a, we were involved with a, um, a secondary school program or through the TAFE network, um, NELAN I think is the, is the acronym for it. But they were telling me that there's only 12 secondary schools across Victoria that have an ag program total. Now that's that's a that's an horrific statistic. I think you know, we, we're not we're not out there promoting what we do, and we wonder why we can't get workers. Um, it's um, you know we, there are so many there's so much technology there's so much um, you know there's research roles there's you know, everything from specialist hydraulics to electric electronics to so many different occupations that can be have an ag focus, but it's, it's not it's, it's not even put on their radar in the cities that, that that's even an option. So there, there's a we've got a huge awareness problem out there, and unless we as farmers actually want to engage and 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 promote what we do, I, I don't think we're going to bridge that divide. So I want to delve into it a bit more. Yeah, you guys, president of livestock, president of greens, the high hedgens, the bosses. I've came to a lot of these events over the last 12 years in Australia, in the West Coast and the East Coast. There's a certain demographic here of age, mm. and we're talking about how we get people involved in agriculture. But how do we get people who are already in agriculture, but who are younger, involved in things like state farming organisations? And is that a challenge ongoing with memberships? I think it's pretty easy. You just tell your nephew he's got to come along. <laughs> no, it's, I'll, I'll kick the Steve. Yeah. Uh, look, yeah, in our local area, we've got um, a group of uh, 300 majority young people. Um, they pay $30 to be a member of the group. It's a research farm. Um, they're not interested in policy. So... We're certainly trying hard at VFF, um, and obviously rates is an issue this this year for them. Um, so there is an avenue where we can, you know, just um, be involved and certainly raise awareness of what can possibly be done. And it's not only rates. I mean, um, I did the pain relief uh, spiel, and um, yeah, a few other things, but. They don't do policy, and but at times they need policy. But again, they're paying. I think it's thirty, or might be, might even be a hundred. So compared to what we have to pay to be a members, um, yeah, Emma's not here, so I can say we need the South Australian levy-based model where everyone contributes. Um, so uh, there is an avenue. The the young people are out there, but they need a carrot for sure, and they need. A topic, I suppose. So, and a lot of these ones are third third generation, so they've just just starting to get you know their hands on the checkbook. Um, so all of a sudden they've figured out you know where all the money's going with you know all of a sudden a huge rate bill. So, I think they will come along, but certainly they do still need um, yeah prompting, education, 
or we need to have winnable outcomes, which we are achieving, but probably not enough of them to get them excited to actually come along and be involved. But there's nothing worse, um, you know, when you've got a domineering um, older states, statesman um, in the room that, yeah, doesn't don't give the young ones a, a, a word in, I suppose. Like Ash. Like Ash, you say. Is there, <laughs> is there a space for uh, some kind of a mentorship-type program, perhaps, where... Because it could be the case that some of these younger folk are thinking that you, you, you old boys have all got it all, ha all handled. I'm saying old boys, even though I'm pretty grown myself. Old silverback gorilla sitting here. Um, but, yeah, is that, is that a kind of thing where to have an actual designated program where, where it's encouraged and you get you know, applicants in to do it, you know, like your uh, leadership program you're doing with uh, Sheep Producers Australia, Andrew, you know? That's me, leader of sheep. Yes, um, certainly uh, all the peak councils have um, opportunity for youth ambassadors. Um, grains and livestock will start that process uh, tonight with um, a small scholarship, I suppose, um, for some younger members. Um, so th there is avenues that have started um, but yeah, obviously we have to populate that as well. But um, I think at Cattle Council, there was you know, one young rising champion in the um, cattle industry from each state. Um, one of the past winners of that, um, or participants I suppose, is now st um, standing um, in the Basco Shire as a um, politician. So, and I think he's only uh, 27 or something like that. So that's a win, um, obviously. But yeah, that could be top of the tree, but others will follow. Good one. So we've we pretty much solved uh, farm labour issues and I think we can move on to an easier topic like biosecurity. Um, you mentioned actually, Steve, that you, that was the one that keeps you up at night was the biosecurity one. Um, and I noted in your speech earlier today, you, you, you're pushing for a, a three month closure of the, of the border, to, particularly to Indonesia, or is that more specifically to Bali? Or what's, do you want to give us a bit more of a rundown of your thought process there? Yeah, so I've already been rung up by a reporter on this. Um, so. Look, we'll debate that t tomorrow. Um, I am aiming high, um, but again, it's our livelihoods. Um, we've got too much to lose. We have to make a, uh, a stand, I suppose. We have to raise the issue um, higher with our um, city counterparts, but obviously our farming community as well. Um, it's easy to become complacent, um, not having a shot at WA, but I will. You know, They all go to Indonesia for their holidays. Um, so, you know, all of a sudden I thought um, Sydney and Melbourne and Darwin were our biggest threat, but all of a sudden it's Perth um, as well as, yeah, so it is a big issue. Um, but we've got to be proactive rather than reactive. I mean, it's all very well to, you know, we can put in truck washers, but again, it's reactive. We have to be proactive in this space. As a, as a disease, FMD is obviously not just in Indonesia, though. It's is, is around all of Southeast Asia and Africa and other parts. But are you worried because of the numbers of people that go from, particularly from, um, from Australia to Indonesia and back again, rather than the fact that it's just there? Like, it's obviously elsewhere as well around the world. Yeah, it's certainly, that's correct. Um, but, you know, it only takes, you know, um, a Collingwood football player and, geez, you know, we can see what happens there. Um, but, yeah, you, you just, you just, you'd be guaranteed that they wouldn't go on a farm, that's for sure. But, you know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a big subject. But, look, yeah, the photo was taken the other day um, of a cow in Bali, um, yet to be confirmed, but, look, its skin didn't look real good. Um, so, yeah, everyone's taken a photo of this cow with a bell around its neck. I'm sure people were patting it. So, it's pretty close. And once, yeah, it's 
we'll have to watch this space, but we have to be proactive. It's not the first time there's been a haggard cow on the beach in Bali, though. But in terms of... Uh, I'll pay that. But in terms of... We're all Victorians here, apart from Colin Biddles. We're going to Western Australia on tomorrow. And EID tags. Why are EID tags controversial? In Victoria, mandatory? Yep, okay. Um, Why did I get abusive messages? Yeah, look, this is always tags? a frustration for me, for those that um, sit at um, table sometimes. You're still laughing on that. Um, <laughs> Look, we can sell you know, an old U for $150, $200, and uh, the commission we pay on that varies from you know, $7 to $12. And yet we have other states um, won't spend $1.60 on an EID tag um, in, their, in their sheep. Um, it's a huge, huge issue, issue um, going forward. But you know, it's not as simple as putting an EID tag in, in a, um, a sheep or a goat. Um, we still need a database that's um, funded um, and it's, it has to be a national system. So it's, it's already too late. We need this system up and going now. SafeMeet have recommended it 10 times. Sheep producers um, are pulling their hair out. They, and, but still, you know, there's other states that um, just think that their mob-based system in sheep works. Um, EID, we can trace the sheep at worst one or two days, three days. A mob-based system is three to four weeks. So again, it's too late. Um, the stock movements in the country, you know, it's a whole cobweb um, within 24 hours. As soon as we sell a sheep here in Ballarat, it's throughout Australia. Um, so very, yeah, even when we started EID here in Victoria four or five years, six years ago, there were some people that wouldn't have mattered if the tag was 20 cents. It's electronic, don't want it. But you know, um, there's other people that suggest, and rightly so, that EID help with productivity. But EIDs are for biosecurity, one, two, and three. That's why we have them. Um, and we've just got to get the system up and going, national system, get it funded, get rid of the phantom herd, phantom flock, and producers have to be involved with this. If it was ever going to get off the ground to national system that we were just now, and you speak to your counterparts around the country, what do you think the chances are out of 10? New South Wales have their conference next month. Uh, their president's not in favour of it, so um, I'll be certainly making contact with their peak council uh, reps. Um, again, you know, it's, it's just a no-brainer. Um, it, it has to happen now, otherwise we may as well yeah, go cropping for the next 10 years. Is it just an issue, I'm thinking, Ash, you're sitting here quietly just letting Steve field all these questions on particularly animal biosecurity. Um, is, is, is it an issue for you as a grain farmer? Do you really care that much about, about that aspect or do you think it would impact you as well if, if it got in? Oh, definitely. I mean, there's, you know, most grain farmers have livestock. I mean, that, that's the reality of it and hence why we've got a joint conference. Um, but you know, more from a, a, a grain's perspective, biosecurity is still a huge issue for us. Um, you know, take capra beetle and, and, the, and the like, they, you know, our, our biggest risk is probably the container trade coming in from overseas um, and, then the, and then having an escape um, you know, out of a major city um, or a container. You know, we've seen it come through in, in um, washers and dryers and fridges, packaging and pram packaging and, and so forth. So you know, they're, they're very real issues um, that we're faced with and, and we're also faced with a, 
with a, a diminishing resource in our inspection regime. So you know, every every year we seem to have less and less inspectors and less and less resources. So it's it's almost instead of prevention, it's almost once it gets out, then what's our containment strategy? Well, we can't have that. No, we've got we've got to stop it from getting out. Can I just add? Um, I think it was in Brisbane there a month ago. Four, um, two raccoons were on a container. Took them four hours to um, round them up. So if a raccoons can yeah jump on yeah get a free boat ride um it's yeah luckily they were spotted well we didn't I, have I was, I was waiting for a punchline there actually <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to think of one i'm trying to think well of your one cow now. in barley wasn't good enough didn't really <laughs> set me off um i was just thinking too though when you're saying as well about look with with uh, the lack of i guess um funding to a degree and and and, and approach there we, when asf was was breaking out and we got it as, you know, as close to, to the borders here in Timor-Leste and it was not until they were starting to get really concerned they put sniffer dogs in Darwin Airport, you know, but we didn't have them there before that, which I was, I was gobsmacked when I heard that that wasn't the case, there was just no focus to kind of keep these things out. Yeah, look, that was certainly a wake-up call and since then the border security system has strengthened. Um, but we certainly want it strengthened again and just, you know, reinforce, um, yeah, that they are doing their job properly. And, and you, you, you're leaving, you'll come under more scrutiny going from Melbourne to Tasmania. Hmm. Thankfully. But in terms of... <laughs> in terms of that green thing as well, in terms of the biosecurity risk here, it's not just a biosecurity risk for greens, FMD, but in terms of when we're doing export, uh, our, our trade, yeah? A big chunk of our trade in Australia for grains in Victoria goes in the domestic market in, in a good year, in, in a bad year, sorry, yeah? yeah? But if we had a really bad outbreak of FMD, we'd lose cattle on feed, we would lose pigs, which would reduce probably a couple of million tonnes of demand. So it does have a sort of a flow-on effect right through the sort of the supply chain. But... Yeah, and uh, I, I suppose Victoria's probably of all states probably one of the best insulated necessarily from that because it's a 50 50 50 percent domestic 50 percent export um whereas you know if you if you look at say um western australia 90 percent export uh, um they're, they're probably going to be affected the least um you know it's there'll always be another market i think for that product but let's not have it let's not let's not have to deal with it I think that's that's the real message. Something more simple. The new government. How is VFF going to work with the new government? We've got the first Labour government in nine years. Yeah. And how will you find, like, we've also been dealing with the, on a federal level, the nationals. But how are you going to find it dealing with a new Labour government? Okay. Uh, <laughs> Pass. <laughs> yeah, didn't see that one coming. Uh, so, um, look, there's always challenges, but look, again, um, all the relevant bodies are queuing up to um, get into the office of our new Agricultural Minister, um, Mark Watt. Um, so, Murray. Murray, there you go, yeah. wrong office. Um, so, look, someone told me that. Look, a new government is always difficult and, um, yeah, it's, look, it's changing all the time, but 
all the peak councils you know, are well entrenched in their key messaging going forward. Um, uh, I keep, yeah, what we don't need obviously is the balance of power going to independence and you know that may happen with our state election and that was probably the biggest fear during the um, national federal election. Um, so yeah, we'll just see what happens but yeah, everyone's on the front foot to um, yeah, converse with the um, relevant ministers and um, get the best way forward for agriculture. Do you really think it matters what colour they are now? Like in terms, like there's only so many levers a government can pull either way. Does it really matter if it's national, liberal, or labour? Short answer, no. Yeah, I, I think I think I think there's a there's an element there that, of how well they're going to get on together between state and federal, and and having a you know, a labour government in Victoria, a labour a federal government. Labour's tend, tends to have in history, I think, a, a an appetite for spending on infrastructure. Um, and from, from, I guess, from a grains perspective, that'd be great to see some of that, that funding. So we've got, you know, on, on a federal basis, um, you know, if we look at our rail system, that, that's going to need, you know, a 50-50 or a 60-40 split of funding from the feds to the states. So to have the feds on side could, you know, that, that actually could be a beneficial thing. Um, Labor's not been, always been the worst thing for agriculture um, investment. So, uh, I guess it's you know we've got a number of our, our road train network in in Victoria runs to the end of roads at the border which don't necessarily link up to the right weight bridge to go across that river and so you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of need for you know total infrastructure outlook which is something we've been talking about over the last couple of days as to what's that whole logistical supply chain look like and, and you know whichever way you want to take it from you know say Mildura or Southern Riverina right through to the Melbourne and Geelong ports or whether you want to look at it from right what, what's our port capacity what's what's our dock usage like and then go right okay we've got we've got we've only got a 40% dock usage in the port of Melbourne how you know what what's the, what's the next what's the next thing that needs fixing to take that to 90%, and then what's the next thing? And you know, all of a sudden you get to how many trains can we get in? How many trucks can we get in? What's what's our unload rate? And and, and just and work back until we've until we've got a solution that actually is going to fix the problem. And that's that's what we've got to we've got to have our eye on. From that bigger government perspective, Andrew's just saying about Ash with regards to you know Liberal National Coalition or Labor, if they're in power and they've got a majority government, we're probably not expecting too much differences between the two, they're either side of the middle, right? But it's when, is, is the real concern when you get maybe, at some stage, not this, this, this term, but into maybe a future term when we get another minority government, where then you've got a group of independents or Greens or whatever that are holding some level of sway in terms of key policy, and I'm thinking of things like you know, the live export of sheep, or indeed maybe the live export of cattle, or even just the transport of animals around the country, and they start being concerned about animal welfare because of these pressure groups that don't really reflect the broader community in terms of you know, what people's thoughts are. Is that the concern there? If, you know, not so much whether it's Labor or Liberal, whether when it's starting to see those parties that are having other agendas that are influencing those bigger parties? Yeah, for sure. In a, you know, without a majority government, they, that's always going to be a very big risk, no doubt. Yeah, that's, 
And I just um, keep saying um, around um, the, the trips I do, I don't mind if you vote for Labor, I don't mind if you vote for Green, but put them together, that's trouble for a farmer. Yep. So a lot of the talks today, uh, especially John Blackburn's one, was about supply chains. And the thing that everyone's been talking about for the last 12 months has been things like fertiliser, yeah? Do you think that's an opportunity now for more domestic production of fertiliser? Do you see that as actually something that will happen? There is an opportunity, um, but I'll, I'll preface that in that you can, it's, it's still got, the price is still going to follow the world price. That's, that's the market. It's always going to follow the world price, but it's, you're going to have access to supply if it's produced locally. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, as farmers, we have got a history of if it's $10 cheaper or $5 cheaper somewhere else, we're, we're going there to get it. So how you generate that loyalty um, of that price loyalty, regardless, um, into the future. And that's, you know, if you're, you know, if you're an Incitec pivot and, and you want to you know, revamp a production facility, that's the sort of guarantees that you're going to be looking for. And I, 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 I would challenge that. The, the farmers would pay a loyalty premium. Correct. Yeah, I think um, also the uh, use of alternative fertilisers is um, growing. I mean, all of a sudden, um, chook manure, <laughs> pig manure, um, yeah, all of a sudden they're um, yeah, going up in price and, um, you know, all of a sudden they're spreaders using them. But as a percentage, you know, it be, wouldn't be much compared to what is required. So we're just going to break from this discussion and jump into an advert. For the, for the pig manure, do you see a space set up when you mention pig manure? That <laughs> <laughs> got our attention. Fifteen dollars a ton available on the outskirts of Bendigo. <laughs> Speak to me at dinner time, and we can discuss um, carrier agreements uh, and logistics. If you thought we were full of shit, we've got lots and of shit to sell. And, and the freight subsidy is what? Uh, free on board. Through us off. And and I guess it. it yeah, when you look at all of those renewable type things and, and wh where, wherever you're using a finite resource, for instance, you, you know, once it gets to a certain price, then a lot of other things become, all of a sudden become viable and you can start to look at them and it doesn't matter, you know, I, I get frustrated with when we talk about renewable energy in this country and we're fixated on solar and wind. It's, it's like they're the only two renewable sources of energy out there. Um, you know, they're not and, you know, you only got to look around at autumn and you've got the amount of stubble we burn that just goes whoosh into the atmosphere and the the, gener the generation that could be created off that in small in small pot in small scale um, power generation plants. And that's what happens in the UK. Yep. Biodigesters yep. and all those type of things. Yeah, Europe, Europe's full of them. Scandinavians do it really well. Um, yeah, but for some reason we're just not looking at that stuff. But that all kind of worked from subsidies as well though. So it was a lot of subsidies paying for a lot of that biodigesters and whatnot. And then it was the start of it in 2000. So you're saying we haven't, we haven't subsidised solar or wind? We've not subsidised the stuff on farm yet. But maybe we should. Mm. Mm. There's, 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 there's a significant government investment in subsidising solar installation. What about a consideration for nuclear as well? Is that, is that something that could be considered to take some of that base load power off or you think that's never going to happen? I think if it happens, Gippsland will get it. It'll be in my backyard. 
I've got everything. I've got everything else: solar panels, wind turbines, um, hydrogen. Um, yeah, pine trees. We'll get it. Low population. There's only 20 of us in the district, so big area. Um, yeah, we're just prime candidates for all this. It's always useful as well because you might grow an extra set of hands. <laughs> Solves the farm labour issue then as well. <laughs> really quick for shearing, two at a time. Uh, it's, 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 I, I think, I think um, nuclear is just a no-brainer, to be honest. It's a, um, as in no-brainer you should do it or no-brainer we shouldn't touch it? No-brainer we should do it. You've got particular, I mean, there's nuclear technology has come so far and if, if, you're, if you're building a fission plant, then you've, you've got no issues. It's, it's all about just keeping it cool. And if you take all the nuclear waste from every nuclear facility in the world over the last 55 years, you're, you're talking about um, seven ho ice hockey fields to the depth of the, lift the your, Lift your mic. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> seven... Uh, ice hockey fields, the depth of the boards, that's all the nuclear waste that exists. You keep that cool and you have no issues at all. So you wrap it and in And just plastic. store it in Gippsland. You put it, you, put, you can you put everything it, else. Put it, put, it, put it in plastic and put it at the bottom of the ocean and it's, you've never got an issue. It's, um, yeah, it, it's this, it's such a, a good use of resource and when, and when Australia's Rich in so rich in uranium. I, I just think it's, it's for, for Australia as we sit. We uh, it is a no-brainer. It is purely political that it doesn't happen. So the last controversial topic, China. And this one's for you, Ash. Really, uh, we we've had a two years now of no access to China. And somebody, I think it was from Richie Brothers earlier on, thought there'd be a thawing of the relationship with China. Do you think we'll start to see China come back into the back to the table a bit more? They've been taking things like wheat, but a few other commodities they've been taking less of. Do you think we'll get a better relationship with them, maybe with a new government or just a change of things happening there? Oh, definitely. Um, China will certainly come back to the table, and whether it's a diplomatic reason, I think. Yes, China's always been. Um, driven by supply-demand um, when, when they've got too much domestic um, production or, or they want to change direction because they want more protein or soybean, for instance, then they'll, they'll slap a tariff here or, or there. And that, that's, you know, I always say China's been trading for a thousand years. They're really good at it. You know, they, they, can, they can manipulate a market you know, to, to their benefit. Um, they've got, you know, you look at the 1.5 billion people, but that they can actually only account for 1.2 billion people in China. So when you think about that, they've actually got a population the size of the US that they know is there, but they can't account for them. So you know, when you've got that sort of scale, you, you, can't, you can't help but have power to be able to manipulate markets. And they'll, they'll come in and out and, and create some heartache for us, um, you know, as they wish. I guess the... The problem we have was that we became very we became so reliant on China, and I think one of the lessons that we've we'll gain out of, we'll come out of all this with is that we've created some more markets and we probably won't let ourselves be as exposed to that one single market going forward. And I think that'll actually, that'll actually be a positive for us. Do you think they will though? Because you made a comment before about how somebody would if it's ten dollars less they would sell to 
and out they buy from another fertilizer company. Yep. There's no loyalty here. But let's say, for instance, you Australia doesn't sell any grain to China anyway. It's from trader to trader, yeah? Yeah. And so do we think in a couple of years' time, traders not just say, I get an extra 2 or $3 selling to China? Do you think we'll really see diversification? Yeah, we, we, you're probably right. We're pretty, we, we can be pretty easy to forget. Um, yeah. The, the, tra the traders will always chase the dollar because that's where they're going to make their money. And, and you're right, as a government, we don't sell. It, it is trader to trader. Um, yeah. But do you think we'll see, I guess one of the things that we saw in the last two years is things like AGIC, Grains Australia, doing that sort of, what's, what's the word of it, marketing mm -hmm. of the properties of Australian barley, properties of Australian grain. Do you think that will help us get new markets, like sort of malt barley into Mexico and South America? Yeah, well, it, it, it can't hurt. How, how much it actually gains us, I don't know, but it, 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 any, any marketing is, is, is good in, in that if we can just lift our profile, raise someone's awareness about the quality differences, etc. Um, yeah, at the end of the day for the wheat market, the, the war in the Ukraine has been the, the biggest kick. Um, and, and and but when we look at some of that some of that wheat that comes out of the Ukraine, um, may not be the same quality, etc. So if we can get a better quality product in for a similar price into a market that's previously been fed by Ukraine, well then maybe we stand a chance of once they've had a taste of that better product, if it is then do we have a chance of retaining that business going forward? That's, that's probably a very real possibility. And we haven't really touched upon Ukraine war all that much today, other than the supply chain sort of an issue. Yep. Um, in terms of, like, from your individual farm, yeah, have you, what do you think is the biggest risk at the moment in terms of from a market's point of view? Because we've seen that Ukrainian has, Ukraine has pushed the price of wheat through the roof, but it's also pushed the price of inputs through the roof. I guess, are you making any more money? Or do you think it's going to be a bit of a cost price squeeze? Oh, there's, def there's definitely going to be a cost price squeeze on last year because last year we had prices rose, but we we're, were already, we'd already locked in all of our inputs. So, you know, there was a margin there that we're not going to see again this year because, you know, we're back into a higher input market with you know, similar prices. Hopefully, wheat's got a four in front of it. Um, it's... I guess where, where that bottom line, I think we, we've probably got more more to be made from probably smart input decisions necessarily than that that um, ch just chasing that two dollars or five dollars a, a ton at the other end. Um, hmm. And what, what 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 do you mean by smart decisions? Like well, being, being uh, more variable <coughs> and whatnot. Yeah, I, I, and John Bennett. Um, alluded to it when he was talking about how far ahead he's been looking. Um, you know, I know some, some guys just in the council. Um, you know, you're looking ahead all the time and trying to hedge that risk and so forth. And, and whether it's you know having the tyres for that machine there, so that if you blow a tyre, you're not held up for harvest and you, you're not impacted by that rain event that comes that week later. Um, <clears throat> it's all of those those little management decisions that'll make a big difference to that overall end result. Ash, is there enough in the way? I mean, obviously, the, the you know the job of farming's complex, and you've got a lot of stuff you're doing on farm. But is there is there enough, I guess, support or education or understanding of 
of how those markets, when it gets post the farm gate, how those markets interact with the farm in terms of the prices, whether it's prices of imports or prices of your product. Do, do farmers have the time and, and, and interest and effort and energy to, to focus on that as well? Or is it just that you're too busy on farm you know, that you can't kind of do everything at once? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great observation. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk generally because there are a lot of farmers that are really across this, but generally I would say that would be the top two or three percent of farmers that are actually fully across that. Um, the how, how the whole marketing um, side of things works, I would say, is a whole lot of smoke and mirrors for most, for most farmers. Um, and it's, you know, it's... Right, I'm that I'm that busy with what I'm doing. I'll get the crop off. I'll get it to I'll get it to market. Um, I've got I have I have hedged. I have taken out contracts on on 60% of my crop, um, but that was that was my risk limit, um, and I'm and I'm just going to wear the cash price on the day. For the other 40%, now you know I'm, that's that's keeping it simple and it's keeping it risk adverse. Um, you know, to understand the whole marketing chain and what you can do within that is certainly an area that I think we can, you know, between, particularly between the likes of, you know, GPA, GGL and that sort of thing, I, and, you know, even, even the Grain Corps and, you know, the Cargills and Glencores, they can, they, they've all, I think everyone's got a role in actually lifting the whole um, education of, of post-farm gate marketing so that we at least have an understanding of what's going on. What about, Steve, what about you thinking in the livestock space? I know there's been a couple of iterations of future styles contract in the past for, for cattle. Um, there are, it's another one trying to get up presently, I believe. We've got, there's been a, a functioning futures type market in the wool space for a number of years, but I think it only hedges about 3% of the clip or something ridiculous like that. Um, is there enough kind of knowledge and education and interest within, within the livestock space for, for these types of products? I think there is, but unfortunately, as you um, rightly suggest, there's only yeah two, three percent that actually take advantage of forward contracts. Um, in general, I think we've been educated with forward contracts, but no one's been willing to take the risk. Uh, yeah, and even when we sell lambs forward contract, there is an issue there at times when you know. Um, processors can get their lambs at the sale yards cheaper, so they push you know, the contracted lambs, in, in this case, back. Um, so I think that somehow that needs to be tidied up, but unfortunately with abattoir space and um, we are at the mercy, um, even though d we've done the forward contracts, we are still at the mercy of abattoir space at times. So, um, so a lot of people are forward contracting their um, sheep, mutton, um, a few in the cattle, um, but, you know, again, you know, we're of that human nature where the cattle market's that high, especially the store market. Um, we're not selling many to the fat market. They're all going to stores. So we're mm. riding the wave. And, of course, we know what happens. But, um, yeah, well, it's very hard for a farmer to change. So some of those delivered contracts, I guess, they've been offered, you know, two, two months, maybe three months out if you're lucky. Some of these derivative-type products, they're talking a year, year and a half, two years out. Um, do you think it, with the advent of those type contracts, do you think there'd be the appetite and the interest for, for the farmer to engage in those as a livestock? I think the more established farmers will, um, definitely, um, because, you know, we still see, you know, like all of us here, interest rates rising. Uh, production's always an issue, you know, whether you get a drought, fire um, or whatever else. Um, but I think, the, again, the more proactive farmers will entertain that sort of uh, market. 
We're coming up close to the end. Ash, this is your last last conference as a president of Grains. Oh, I have a, a one, one more in February. So you've been you've been president for how long now? Four years, or well, th three three and a half years now. What would be the biggest thing, or the biggest thing that you've done over that time as an organisation that you think has made a big impact on on the industry? Uh, payment terms. Bring bringing payment terms um, down to two days from thirty days. And it's all across the board now. Is two days payment terms for the most part? Pretty pretty well standard now across the, across the board. And that you know, I mean, what that's we, we've had a huge a huge issue with grains insolvencies with traders going bust. Um, you know, they've ripped you know well over hundred million dollars out of out of farmers' backs pockets. Um, is the reality of it, and and that's not just out of the farmers. That then the flow on then that to the those regional communities. Um, it's it's it was de it's devastating for all that for everyone involved, um, and so to eliminate you know 98 percent of that risk to bring down to two day payment terms, um, it just it's it's not about you're not you're not stopping a trader from going bust, but what you are doing is is stopping the exposure that you've got in 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 that market, reducing the length of time that yep. you could be at risk, Correct. and so, and so you reckon over that that. With that two-day payment terms, the, the chances of a major insolvency is pretty slim now, really. And it's not something that's particularly complicated either. Like, it's no. like changing that no, to the, two No, I days. mean, the, the, the technology was always there. Um, so, yeah, to, it, just, it just took a bit of... It took a bit of pushing to get someone to pull the trigger, and then once one did, then they, then they all had to follow suit. So it was getting a grain trader on board, a major one, to actually change, and then it was a domino effect. Steve, you're coming to end your tenure as well. Is there something you're particularly proud of in the time that you've been involved in VFF? Yep, I won't dodge the uh, question. I'm very proud of my councillors. Um, I think they've been tremendous, and as mentioned, they've been the strongest council um, we've had for some time. Um, there's ongoing work. The stock squad it just drives me mad. Um, but you know, to get fines increased for the people that are doing the wrong thing, um, that ultimately um, affect our biosecurity, getting the fines increased from you know a good behaviour bond to twenty thousand, but it should be two hundred thousand. Uh, yeah, that that's a win. Um, is it a, a deterrent? You'd sort of hope so, but I think we can go better there. But yeah, work in progress. But uh, look, the biggest achievement um, I've made is you know meeting all these people, um, people of um, certainly uh, politicians. You know, the CVO um, always had a good. VFF's always had a good um, relationship with the department. Uh, ag ministers, look, they come and go like us, I suppose, but you know, we've always had a good relationship there and we've just got to keep building those relationships. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I visit everyone's farms basically um, on council. Um, that's, you know, and they come and visit mine when they can. The, yeah, the friendships you make out of this organisation and by, by being here, are, yeah, the, the, probably the biggest reward, um, personally, for sure. We've got one final announcement to make. Well, we usually do, we have been known for singing on the podcast from time to time, <laughs> so I was going to actually just check if there was a particular favourite song that either of you had that you'd like to do a few bars of. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, definitely not ever. They <laughs> <laughs> should come up with something. Yeah. We, we can actually we can delay the singing until later on. Oh uh, yeah, well, because that's the announce true. the announcement was that we're going for dinner soon. There's pre-drinks, and it's a free bar on Ash and Steve. Mm. <laughs> 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 so help yourself to the bar, and and that's us. There you go. That's the uh, well, we, something that you were going to say, Simon. No, thank you very no? much. No, sorry. <laughs> we'll let you off wait. the hook with the singing. We don't want to. This is the first time we've done an absolute live audience. I think we did a live one on the webinar into Geneva for the International Grains Conference. But it's nice to have the audience with us um, and to chat, uh, to, la to laugh and listen to the chat. I nearly, uh, you saw, I nearly lost it at uh, Wheatwatch's joke about the Balinese cow. But uh, to pull myself together, that was a particularly good one. If you listen closely to the podcast, you do hear me sometimes chuckling in the background like Muttley, from uh, those that are old enough to know Muttley, whenever he says something. We don't script it, of course. Um, thanks for you two for making yourselves available, not knowing what we we're going to really talk about. You've done a, a fabulous job, so I'd like to um, yeah. get the audience to give you guys a, a round warm applause for that. You, you, made, you made a sweat right till the end. You did make a sweat right till the end of the yeah. day. <laughs> we did, but um, I usually sign off with this always on the podcast. I'll see you when you've got nothing on, guys. Cheerio. <laughs> Thank Thanks you very much.